turn to Romans 14. Romans 14. A friend asked me the other day, why do we have so many denominations? And I said, yeah, there's a, there's a lot, aren't there? And he said, there, there have to be like 200. Way more than that. Anyone know the number? Actually, I don't think anyone knows the number. But, but church scholars peg it at somewhere north of 45,000. Which makes his question an even better question, right? It makes it more of a question, not less of a question. Why 45,000 denominations? That's what Paul wants to know as we turn to chapter 14 this morning. What is it that you guys are finding to fuss and feud and dispute and splinter over? Actually, that, that's, that's not exactly, that's not precisely true. He, he doesn't ask why we are. He, he's going to tell us this morning, don't. Just, just stop, because we shouldn't be. Let's read. Receive one, Romans 14, verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? And why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. What Paul is saying, if we were to sum it up, if we were to give it a headline, is don't sweat the small stuff. And most of what Christians debate, the things we differ on, the things we divide over, is very, very small stuff indeed. Some might be fastidious, Paul is saying, even legalistic about food. That's understandable, especially in Paul's day, when much of the church were converted Jews who'd spent their whole life under dietary restrictions. And some of them were having a hard time getting used to this not under the law when it came to everyday things of, of, of living. And Paul is saying, yeah, we're not under the law, and eventually they'll figure out what that means and what that implies. It doesn't have to be a debate. Today, even, 
There, there are those who, for, for health reasons, for ethical reasons, prefer a vegetarian diet, and, and some Christians will roll up on them. God told us we can eat meat. You're not eating meat. You're being disobedient to the Lord. Eat bacon is unto the Lord. Okay, God says it's okay to eat meat. He doesn't say anywhere that we have to. But the, but the bigger point is, is why are we making a big deal out of it? Paul says, hey, some people are legalistic about the Sabbath. That's what he's talking about when he says some have convictions around certain days of the week and what it means to keep the Sabbath and what's permissible on the Sabbath and how we do or don't worship God on the Sabbath. And even today, there's a bandwidth of opinions and perspectives on that, right? And Paul is saying, let people have their opinion, their perspective, wherever it falls on that spectrum. If someone has convictions about things that they shouldn't do on the Sabbath, why does that have to be a big, hairy argument? Ran into that, actually, on a, on a church board that I sat on years ago back in New Jersey. We were finding, we were having a hard time figuring out a, a time on the schedule to all be in the same place at the same time to, I think it was to sign some documents. And someone said, well, look, Sunday afternoon, none of us are doing anything. So let's just meet on Sunday afternoon and we can have coffee and we can sign papers and maybe have a little, and, and one person lost his mind. He said, that's the Sabbath. And we don't do business on the Sabbath. We worship on the Sabbath and we study God's word on the Sabbath. We don't do business on the, okay. I, you know, I, I, I had a different perspective, but hey, if, if, if it's a big thing for you, let's not stumble you. We'll find another time. That's what Paul is saying here. He gives us these two examples, dietary restrictions and Sabbath keeping, as specific instances of a broader point, a bigger point. We're all going to stand before God, Paul says, and give an account for our lives. We're going to stand before the Bema Seat of Christ and receive rewards for the things that we did unto God's name, at places and times of God's choosing, in God's strength, for God's glory. Worry about that, Paul is saying. No, he's not. He doesn't say worry about anything. He's saying focus on that. Concentrate on that. Pay attention to that. Not on whether someone agrees or disagrees about a non-essential issue. P.S., there aren't that many essential issues. The Bible is the inspired word of God. That's essential. Jesus, fully man and fully God, died on the cross, his blood propitiation for our sin. That's essential. Things related to salvation, things related to the word of God that tells us about salvation, things that could prevent or hinder someone's salvation, Things that deny God or misrepresent Jesus or pervert the word or call good evil or evil good. Okay, those are essential things. Those are things when we come across them, we stop, we talk, we reason together. And if we can't find agreement, perhaps, perhaps we break fellowship. But there's a huge category of things that Christians disagree about that aren't that. There's a huge category of things that good and godly smart people can and do disagree about. There's also, there's also another category of things that mature believers would probably all mostly agree about that immature believers, new believers, maybe haven't yet figured out. Things about, I don't know, giving, fasting, serving, witnessing. 
And Paul is saying, hey, when you come across that, when you come across someone who's, who's still figuring things out, you don't have to be the ministry police. You don't have to pounce on people. You're doing it wrong. You shouldn't be doing it. You need to be doing it. Because they might stop wanting to do it at all. He told me that I'm not giving right, so I don't, I don't know how, I guess I don't know how to give, so I'm not going to give. Or he, he told me that I'm not praying right, so I'm not going to pray anymore with you guys because you're mean. You do you, Paul is saying. And yes, correct one another in love. Yes, let iron sharpen iron places and times that's appropriate. But also realize not everything needs correction. And even those things that require discussion, there's a place and time for it. I was really, really bad at this when I was a pastoral intern. I put a badge on my chest and I was the ministry police. Someone dressed inappropriately, I'm going to get them a t-shirt from the church bookstore. They're not going to be walking around the church like that. I'm going to give them something to wear to cover up all the stuff that, you know, is not covered up. Someone would be praying at a, at, at a prayer meeting, and they'd be monopolizing the time, praying for mom and dad and brother and sister and cousin and aunt and uncle and in-laws and the in-laws of the in-laws and the people that the in-laws met once and the people that the in-laws saw at a restaurant once and the people driving down the street outside the restaurant, and 10 minutes later, they're still going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to them about how inconsiderate they are. I'm going to talk to them about being sensitive in the prayer meeting. And, 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 and the pastors at the church looked at me and they said, Stop it! <laughs> but they need to be sensitive. No, you need to be sensitive, Patrick. They're new. They're new to the church. They're probably new to Jesus. Give the Holy Spirit time to speak to them before you speak to them. Give them time to look around and self-correct before you correct them. Give them space to figure things out and maybe use that time, the time that you're not running around being deputy dog, maybe use the time to ask yourself, why is it such a big deal to you? Why do you feel the need to make it such a big deal? Do you think the God of grace cares anything near as much about this as you think that you need to? Why, Patrick, do you care so much about this? And the answer for me, you can say it, you won't hurt my feelings. Pride. Pride. Why do we have so many denominations? Big part of the answer is stupid, stinking human pride. People who can't agree to disagree and keep worshiping together. Now, that makes it sound like I'm against all denominations. They're all bad all the time for an ever, ever amen. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, maybe in an ideal world, yeah, but we don't live in an ideal world, you might have noticed. And sometimes it probably is better to say, hey, why don't you guys take your convictions and your philosophy and your theology and, and, and have unity among yourselves over here and we'll take our convictions and our philosophy and our theology and our style and preferences and, and we'll have unity over here. 
and, and love each other, but, but not try to worship together necessarily because it would be confusing, distracting, annoying. I think there's a healthy way to do that. I think, I think when, when Vineyard and, and Calvary separated in 1982, some of you came from Vineyard and, and are, are now at Calvary. I mean, we're, we're cousins. We started off together. But, but there was a, a cohort within Calvary that was more Pentecostal that put a greater emphasis on tongues and the other dramatic gifts of the Spirit. And then there were a number of fellowships and a number of individuals within the Calvary movement who said, no, worshiping in, in this way, it's beautiful and it's worshipful and it's edifying. And there were others who, who found it distracting and actually a hindrance. And so, hey, why, maybe it's better rather than forcing people under the same roof where probably no one felt, felt full freedom to worship according to their convictions. Hey, let's, you guys do you and, and we'll do us. And, but, but the thing is, for, for every godly separation over doctrinal issues or style issues, a lot of times that's just an excuse for personality stuff or power struggles. You know, the, the, the doctrine or the theology or the philosophy, that's just a veneer. That's just a facade. What's really going on is, is these two guys don't like each other very much or can't forgive each other, don't want to love each other, and so they're casting about for a righteous excuse to break fellowship. 45,000. <laughs> Seems like a lot of division to be all about genuine doctrinal, theological, philosophical, even practical issues. I'd venture to say that most of it doesn't have to do with genuine, substantive disagreements. I'd venture to say most of it has to do with people being disagreeable. How do, how do we keep that from being us? On a personal level, as a fellowship. Because from the beginning of Calvary Chapel, we've said we wanted to. We said that we didn't want to be like that. Statement of faith that used to be on every bulletin of every Calvary around the world when, you know, we still had bulletins. Calvary Chapel has been formed as a fellowship of believers under the Lordship of Christ Jesus. Our supreme desire is to know Christ and be conformed to his image by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not a denominational church, nor are we opposed to denominations as such only to their overemphasis of the doctrinal differences that have led to the division of the body of Christ. We believe the only true basis of Christian fellowship is Christ's agape love, which is greater than the differences we possess and without which we have no right to call ourselves Christians. And that's everything that Paul is talking about, right? It's everything that he's talking about here in Romans. It's, it's the same thing that he said in Galatians and to the Corinthians and to the Thessalonians. Grace. Can we just soak and saturate our relationships with grace? In essentials, Augustine said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty or freedom. And in all things, love. Others. Agape. But you know, even, even open-minded Calvary bros, Calvary, my, my, my daughter 
calls theology prof her theology professors the Theobros, and so I can't stop thinking about that. Even, even open-minded Calvary bros, we've got our pet issues. We've got our hot-button topics. We've got our inviolable opinions that don't come close to anyone's definition of essential except ours. Example, drinking, unwiser sin, dress, suits or jeans, women in ministry, some everywhere, nowhere, 90-minute service, too long, too short, just right, Jewish feast days, observe them, ignore them, denounce them, songs from certain ministries, embrace them, ignore them, Christmas trees. And, and if I had more time, I could keep going. The, the way I built that list, those are issues that people have left this fellowship over. Which makes me sad. And it, and, and it makes me sad on two levels. It makes me sad that, that they felt a need to leave. It makes me sad that in most cases they left angry. Now the encouraging thing, which I've got to call out, the, the reciprocal thing, is not all conversations go like that. Every one of those topics, I've also had conversations in the last two years. I, went, I thought through because I didn't want to exaggerate. I've had a, a conversation about every one of those topics in the last two years that went well. That either ended with, huh, I hadn't thought about it like that. I guess I could see that. Or, and I like this even better actually, you know, I don't think I agree, but I also don't want that to get in the way of us worshiping together. Now, now that second one is technically probably not the best outcome because it still leaves the door open for disagreement down the road, I guess. But I actually really love it. How do you not love it when people agree to keep the main thing the main thing, to keep worshiping together while prayerfully considering the possibility that maybe, just maybe, God is bigger than any of us. How do we, you, you, you me, we, us, how do we try to foster, how do we, how do we facilitate more of those conversations, more of, more of those outcomes? Well, it's, it's got to be Jesus, doesn't it? The Bible conference down at Calvary Wellington yesterday Jesus' instructions to the, to the church. Shouldn't be surprising, that's a lot of what Jesus talked about. And that's a lot of what the early church, the earliest church, practiced. And at least for a time, it kept them from falling into the kind of quagmires that Paul's warning us about. I'm not going to reteach my message from yesterday because I'm teaching this one, but, but if you were there, you're going to you're going to hear some crossover because a lot of the same points apply. What promotes unity in the body of Christ? Three points brought to you by the letter F today. The first is faith. That old Calvary statement of faith, who was in the middle of it? Jesus. Jesus crucified for our sins. Jesus risen in the sight of men. And we say that because the Bible says it. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. We sang that earlier. No other name. Jesus. 
tetelestai. The second to last words of Christ on the cross, paid in full. When we say paid in full, we're also declaring the gospel in full. Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus nothing is everything. But Jesus plus anything is nothing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's also built on nothing more. Christ alone is our cornerstone. We can't add anything to the gospel. No other belief, no other practice, no other duty, no other responsibility. Not tongues, not baptism, not the way we think or act or vote. To Telestai, it's finished. Christ won. I'm sure you get the same conversations, the same questions that I do. What kind of church is Calvary Chapel? 2,000 worldwide, but... Not many people know us here in the middle of the country. What kind of church is Calvary Chapel? When people ask me that, I want to pretend to not understand. I want to play dumb, except God told me I don't get to lie anymore. Because I, I do, I know what they're asking. They're saying, are you Pentecostal, fundamental, Methodist, Baptist, Calvinist, free will, spirit-filled, reformed, preterist, evangelical, ecumenical? They're trying to put us in a box. They're trying to figure out which of the 45,000 ways we've come up with to parse the body of Christ we fall into. And it's one thing to say, you know, our philosophy is this and our conviction is that and our style is this and our doctrine is that. It's one thing to say that and it's another thing to say we're right and the rest of the 44,999 are wrong. What kind of church is Calvary Chapel? The, The question actually misses the point. Because there's only two kinds of church, true church and false church. And the difference between the two is the gospel. Jesus, fully God and fully man, died for our sins. The Bible tells us that story because it's inspired by God. Those are the things that differentiate between true church and false church. And, 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 And here's an implication of that. I don't get to hate the false church. I might disagree with them with every fiber of my being, but there's true church and false church. The true church is filled with my brothers and sisters. The false church is filled with victims, with captives taken prisoner by the enemy to do his will. One is is people I have fellowship with. The other is a mission field. Am I saying that doctrine isn't important? If you've been here more than one week, you know that that's not true. If you're visiting, hi, I'm Patrick. Doctrine is important. But I think we also know, visitors and and, and, and 30-year members alike, doctrine doesn't save anyone. I hope you know that. If you don't know that, I've been, consi- I've been committing pastoral malpractice. Doctrine doesn't save. Jesus saves. I love Calvary. Un- unless something really weird happens, this is my forever family. I love the verse-by-verse teaching of Calvary. I love contemporary worship. I love the simple organizational structure. I love the emphasis on eschatology. I love all the things that make us Calvary. But those things are preference. They're style and they're secondary doctrinal issues. 
None of it saves anybody. The gospel saves. Jesus saves. The blood of Jesus, the expression of the love of Jesus that was the cross, these are the things that save and nothing else. There's doctrine out there that I, that I loathe. There's doctrine out there that I despise, that I think is dangerous. Calvinism is dangerous. I've said that many times. I think it fundamentally misrepresents the love of God. Cessationism, the belief that the gifts of the Spirit don't operate the same way today that they did in the book of Acts, I think that leads to dead orthodoxy. I think it leads to a, to a lifeless church. Preterism, the belief that all biblical prophecy has been fulfilled. I, I, I think that's depressing. I think that robs the future of hope, and I think it, it threatens to change the way that we read our Bibles. Replacement theology, the idea that the church has replaced Israel, God is done with Israel. I, I think that that's tragic because it radically underrepresents, besides being wrong, it radically underrepresents the mercy of God. I'm frightened of Christian nationalism because it completely perverts and distorts the Great Commission. But here's the thing. My Calvinist brother, my cessationist brother, my preterist brother, my covenant brother are my brothers. Because we share a common faith in Jesus Christ. And I'll stand with them, I'll stand with any of them for the sake of the gospel, and I have many times. Calvary Wichita is not the one true church. Let me go further. Calvary Wichita is not the best church. <gasps> From time to time, someone will tell me that. And, and, they, and they mean well, and if you've told me this, I'm not coming at you. But from time to time, someone will say, this is the best church. We were here, and we were there, and we did this, and we were with them, and oh, this is the... And my, my, my flesh loves it. My flesh says, oh, it's like, it's like a hug with words. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't, don't appeal to my flesh like that. Because <laughs> it's not true. We serve the best God. He sent his son as the best expression of love the universe has ever seen. But the church is the church universal. It's his bride. All of those saved by his blood. And, and I believe God calls people to places. I, I am absolutely convinced, like I know my own name, that God called my family to this fellowship. I think God calls people to places. I hope that he's called you here. God calls people to places. And that's what's best for you, the place that God has called you, because that's where God wants to meet you and use you. That's where God wants to, to, to surround you and enmesh you in fellowship that's going to love you and be loved by you and serve you and be served by you. That's where God is going to build you up and use you. And that place may or may not have a dove on the wall. I love my Calvary family, but the family of God is bigger than that. And we have to be humble enough to say so. Now that said, if we want to be the family of God that God has called us to be here at Calvary, Wichita, 
if we want to walk in the good works that he's prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them together to reach and teach and mend and send people in Jesus' name. Jesus needs to not only be the object of our faith, that was bullet point number one, he needs to be our singular focus. That's bullet point number two. Yesterday, I think I said, we were, we were studying through the first six chapters of Acts down at the conference in Wellington. We're, we're going to be back in Acts soon, but we're going to be at the other end. We're going to be in 20, chapters 20 to 28, continuing our study through the life of Paul. And the end of the book of Acts will take us to Rome, where Paul writes the prison epistles, and then after that, uh, the pastoral epistles. And, and the thing is, in all of those letters, Paul talks about a lot of stuff. We've seen him talk about a lot of stuff just just here in Romans. But he always brings it back to one thing. He brings it back to Jesus. He doesn't go very far down any road, down any avenue, on any topic without circling back and anchoring it in Jesus. Just in Romans, Paul has talked about the attributes of God. He's talked about soteriology, the the theology of salvation. He's talked about pneumology, the theology of the Holy Spirit. He's talked about, he's going to talk about practical ministry. He talks about prayer. But no matter what he's talking about, in any of his letters, he always brings it back to Jesus. Family, we need to always be bringing it back to Jesus or differences in opinion that we have, perspectives on on, on practical issues or secondary issues are going to get bigger in our eyes than Jesus. If we're always talking about secondary things, stylistic things, philosophical things, and we're not talking about Jesus, those other things will be bigger in our eyes than Jesus. We, we talk about a lot of stuff here. We talk about prophecy a lot, right? Because more than half of the Bible is prophecy. Why do we do it? Not so that we can get frightened at the morning headlines, but because the subject of every major prophecy is Jesus. We study prophecy to learn about our Savior. We talk about Christian living. When Paul or whomever we're reading in Scripture is talking about it, we don't talk about it so that, that we can teach or learn coping skills for today's chaotic world. We want to be reminded that we can cling to Christ in today's chaotic world and manifest Christ to today's chaotic world. Worship is is a big part of what we do, worshiping the Lord through, through music, through praise. Not so that we have an emotional experience, not so that someone has an opportunity to showcase their musical virtuosity, but because Jesus is worthy. We set aside time to declare him worthy, to declare him the object of our affection, to give him worship, worth in the Old English, worthship, to ascribe worth, to ascribe value. We put a big emphasis on community, not as a substitute for Jesus meeting our needs, but as the means by which Jesus meets our needs. None of us have all the gifts. He's called us together so that we can minister one to another in the gifts that Jesus supplies through his Spirit. And yet we talk about the world because that's where we live. But we're not 
We're not talking about saving it or even improving it. We're not here to make the world a better place to go to hell from. We talk about the world because we're here to see people saved out of it. Jesus has to be our focus, our touchstone, our home base. Pastor Tim, when he was here after the men's retreat, he told the story about the the dog who was chasing the fox and and then a uh, rabbit ran across the path and so then he's chasing the rabbit but a squirrel cuts across the path and and he ends up in 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 a barn pouncing on a mouse. We can do that. We can be like that dog if we jump at the the flashy thing, the fast-moving thing, the next thing, the new thing, the shiny thing, the dramatic thing. No. We need to be about one thing always, and his name is Jesus. Some of you know I've always been interested in mission statements. I think that they can be overdone. I think a lot of organizations put way too much time and energy into it. But when they're done well, they serve a really useful purpose because they delineate, here's what we do, here's who we are, here's what we don't do, here's who we aren't. My favorite mission statement is Ritz-Carlton. Fancy schmancy hotel chain that I've never stayed at. Their mission statement is ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. That's why I've never stayed there. I'm not qualified. But, but, it, but it, it's, it, it's elegant, right? Because their whole thing, their whole brand, what they're about is if we can meet a request, any request with class and dignity, we'll do it. If it's crass and vulgar, we won't. Our mission statement here at Calvary Wichita is win, build, and send. Win disciples for Jesus, build up disciples in Jesus' name, send them out in, in his service. I think if I were to do it again and, and, and reach back to that, to that Ritz-Carlton, maybe, maybe, maybe men and women of Jesus serving men and women and Jesus. I don't know. But it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's words. A lot of you have been part of companies or organizations that had all kinds of words on all kinds of walls. Mission statements and values and credos. And, yeah, it's words. At the end of the day, what matters is, is what we do. Do we walk the talk? Do we live out those words? And it really comes down to, we shouldn't do anything that leaves Jesus behind. We shouldn't do anything for any other reason in any other name. We shouldn't do anything that we can't do as worship. That's a line that says what we are and what we do and what we don't and what we aren't. We need to be about Jesus, which in in, in everything including, and this is point number three, as we head for the finish line this morning. Jesus has to inform everything, including our fellowship, including our community. Community begins with saying, hey, you and I have something in common. You and I are alike in in, in this way. I forget who it was that, that said trust starts with saying, you too? Man, I thought I was the only one. What is it that binds our fellowship together? We want Jesus to be the answer, but I'll tell you, I I was part of a church once upon a time that the honest answer, the real answer, the the street-level practical answer was Yankees baseball. Because any time that church came together, that was the name on everybody's lips. That was the theme overflowing from their hearts. A lot of things can bind a community together. 
Hey, people look like me. We're from the same demographic. Everyone's got the same kind of beard. People like the same music as me. Watch the same shows as me. Vote for the same people as me. Hate the same people that I do. Here's the thing. Whatever it is that binds us together, it's likely to be the first thing that people notice when they encounter us. People will pick up on whatever that unifying factor is because what unifies us defines us. What we find our identity in is the identity they will find. What's the first thing someone notices when they come into our church? That, when, when, when they get past the official greeting. You know, the people who are there to say good morning because that's their job and they're supposed to. What are the conversations that people overhear? What do they see people excited about? Hey, find me afterwards. I want to show you my new gun. Hey, hey, I, I, did, you, did you see this new, new video on the tickogram? Did you, hear the, did you hear that Biden wiped out? Did you hear that Chick-fil-A is woke and I guess it's been woke for a long time? Did you hear that, that they found a pride flag backstage at some TV show? You know, we say a lot that only Jesus could have brought this group of people together. Because it's true. <laughs> only Jesus could have brought all of us here. What are we talking about? What are we excited about? What's binding us together now that we're here? While we are here? Whatever it is, is what visitors are going to pick up on. Whatever it is, is what people are, 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 is what our reputation is going to be. When people walk in the door, they're, only, they're either going to discern the fragrance of Christ or something else. Pastor Tim and I were talking. We were talking about a, a, a pastor that we both know. And he said, how many Democrats do you think have gotten saved in his church? And, and we kind of chuckled the way that you're kind of chuckling. And then we kind of shook our heads because that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Don't we want anyone who walks in the door to experience the love of Christ, to have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ? Can we talk about other things? Sure. Should, be, should anything else be the reason that we gather on Sunday morning? Should anything else be the reason we're excited to see each other? Can anything else be the basis of our community? Absolutely not. If, if, the, if, the, if the basis of our fellowship is anything other than Jesus, listen, someone will walk in the door and immediately feel unwelcome, uninvited, unloved. Because Jesus is universal. They might be convicted. They might be challenged. But they'll also be loved. If... if, if if our, the basis of our fellowship is anything else, someone will immediately be put off and will have missed an opportunity. Will have missed an opportunity for them to get to know a family loved by Jesus, loving like Jesus. 
because there was a group of believers committed to that who turned the world upside down in the book of Acts. It was a group of believers committed to that that were making movies about 50 years later. The Jesus movement. It'll be a group of believers who believe that that the Holy Spirit uses if he doesn't return for us first. Wrapping up. Talking to Pastor Joe yesterday from Calvary Wellington. He brought Calvary to Kansas 50 years ago, 5-0. Might have been, hard to be sure, probably was the first Calvary planted outside of California. Regardless, 50 years is a long time to do anything. And I told Joe, Joe, I am jealous. I'm jealous of his longevity in ministry. I'm also jealous he was there at ground zero when the Spirit was moving. But, you know, I, I had my own distant connection to the Jesus movement. I was a little guy growing up in the Catholic Church when, when the Holy Spirit was cooking in South, Southern California. But directly or indirectly, that Catholic Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, caught that spirit. I don't know if it was the spirit moving or if it was people imitating the spirit moving, but we were singing Jesus songs. We were singing Maranatha songs. Simple choruses. Love, love, love. That's what it's all about. Because God loves us. We love each other. Mother, father, sister, brother. Everyone stand and shout. And we'd stand and shout. That's what it's all about. It's about love. We sing Kumbaya. Literally. (laughs) We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. Saying that a lot because it turns out that was written by a Catholic priest in Chicago. So that was on the approved list. (laughs) And I love Jesus. I really did. I loved Jesus. I knew Jesus loved me. I tried to love other people because Jesus told me to. But along the way, the church changed. The priests who liked the long-haired hippie kids with the guitars left, and so did the long-haired hippie kids. We were back to organs and hymns. The times changed. The 60s begat the 70s. Others begat self, the me generation. I changed, I hit puberty, and you know how that goes. <laughs> and, I, and I left my first love. I even forgot his name. And I kept looking for that love whose name I'd forgotten in all, all other places. I, I looked for it in, in academics, because if I got good grades, my mom loved me. I looked for it in uh, athletics, because if I made all conference, my dad loved me. I looked for it in the, you know, the, the, the false camaraderie of beers and bottles and bars. I looked for it in the, in the counterfeit intimacy of casual sex. I looked for it in the idolatry of you're the one, you're the only one, you complete me kinds of relationships. And, and, and it was like Elijah. God wasn't there. God wasn't there. God wasn't there. And I didn't even know that it was God that I was looking for. I had forgotten Jesus until someone brought me back to Calvary and I found the one I'd forgotten that I was looking for and my point is this there's a lot of people like me out there 
walk around this town, you walk around this town, everyone's been to church. I grew up in church. My parents took me to church. Yeah, I went to youth camp. Yeah, I was baptized. Hector was telling me he had someone in his chair the other day. He was cutting someone's hair. Yeah, I used to be a youth pastor. Really, what happened? I'm not anymore. What about you and Jesus? Hey, how about those royals? There are a lot of people, former Catholics, former Lutherans, former Methodists, former whatever, who have, who have left their first love. What's going to help them return to their first love? Or, or find it in the first place? It's not going to be doctrine. It's not going to be politics. It's going to be Jesus. And Jesus' people. Loving with Jesus' love. What's the rest of the verse? They'll know that we are Christians, Jesus says, by our love for one another. It starts here. 